The last 20 years, I've had the privilege of broadcasting engaging conversations with teachers and authors, scientists and engineers, CEOs, journalists, artists, academics, the makers and thinkers who shape the world we live in. I'm Lyle Troxell. Welcome to GeekSpeak. Today we'll be discussing Chapter 2 of The Software Arts by Warren Sack. This is a multi-part series. If you're not familiar with the series at all, I would suggest listening to at least the Part 1, which is the introduction to the topic, so you're up to speed. Hi, Warren. Thanks for having me in your home. Hi, Lyle. It's a pleasure to have you here to continue this discussion. It's this multi-year discussion we've been having since we've known each other in some sense about these topics. Chapter two is about translation. What's your intention in setting up this, this chapter of the book about translation? What's your intention? What baseline are you trying to bring people up to? Well, there's two versions of translation. There's many versions of translation, but there's at least two versions of translation. One would be a computer scientist notion of translation. And when we write a compiler, for example, we say we're translating a high-level language into a lower-level language. And that translator or interpreter or evaluator... Compiler. Compiler. All those things pretty much are said to be translators. In the sense that they're... But they're very different than the other type. And then the, the other version of translation is really from the humanities. And usually the canonical situation is you have a text in one language and you want to translate it into another spoken language and in so doing you don't do that mechanically it really is a matter of interpretation things get lost uh, things get added uh, things errors are introduced or whatever um, maybe not errors maybe enhancements yeah. so so one is computer translation or compiling, and the other is really more about trying to say, this text means this thing, and let's be able to make that same meaning in a different language. Right. L- let me read this a little bit to get us kind of at the, some of the setup in the book. This is page 36. We are in the midst of rewriting the world in which we, many of our important political, economic, social, and cultural institutions are being translated into software in which digitalization is accomplished by reducing music, video, text, memory, friendship, almost everything, into bits, into ones and zeros. Convergence is actually a matter of language, and only marginally in a matter of number. To understand the increasing importance of computers, we need to understand computers as a language technology, and digitization and computerization as a process of translation, equivalence, and identity. Can you give us some examples just to set the baseline of what we're talking about here, what's actually being translated into computers in our world? Well, I guess when the MIT Media Lab was started in the mid-'80s, it was all based on the whole notion that the world of computers and print and film were going to converge. And now we just think, well, of course. (laughs) That's that's obvious. But that was um, actually the competitive advantage for fundraising for the MIT Media Lab starting in the in the mid-80s. But then we've seen uh, this go beyond business, right? So now when we go down to the voting booth, um, the voting booth is a digital thing. 
And it's a computer program that's running that. So on the one hand, you say voting's like it's always been. Because um, you go down to a voting area. Yeah. Right. But if you remember the, the 2000 presidential election, there were all these hanging chads, right? Um, and which they had to bring in people who were more or less reading tea leaves to say, well, what was the intent of this punch versus that punch? Right. Um, and, and in fact... For that, in many machines, there are no punches anymore. Right. And in fact, that punch system was specifically designed for a computer to be able to read it. Like that's why we have holes in that system. The, the Scantron con- concept is about trying to digitize the, the voting process or the grading process. Right. Well, and that pretty much starts in the... Uh, I think it's the 1890 census. Mm-hmm. They were still counting the 1880 census. And they realized they needed to move to these punch cards um, in order to count things fast enough. So Which to, would have been more of a mechanical system rather than a... Right. The backing wouldn't have been um, transistors at that point, but it would still have been a machine. In some sense, that digitalization is pre-computer mechanization of our understanding of counting. It is a, it is a digital system, right? right. Um, because you have a punch card with uh, 72 columns, I believe it is. That's the way you used to program the computer. That's how I learned how to program a computer um, with these punch cards. You can go down and see these punch, punch cards at the Computer History Museum still. But those, uh, those punch cards were used by mechanical systems in order to do the counting before. And then you have the, the rise of uh, companies like IBM. Okay. Right. All right. So that gives us some foundation of how widespread and how historic this process has been. It's not that we've did, did a lot you know, since Facebook came online. This has been happening for for uh, 100 years. Yeah. And the discussion in this chapter of translation, what we're talking about is because those things are happening, really you have to understand that translation is not this perfect meaning-to-meaning copy. It's not the same thing. Like, me wa- me going to wa- watch a video on, on Netflix is not the same as me going to Blockbuster and getting a video. Even though culturally we kind of use it, the same terminology, the same words, and the words that mean, hey, we watched a movie last night, does not mean that we had cellulose in a projector at our house, and everybody understands that. So as these meanings change, the idea that you use in this chapter quite a bit, you kind of refer back to the English tube system and the announcements. Uh, Can you describe that for me real quick? Well, the whole, if, if you go to London and you ride the tube, you'll see all these signs that say, mind the gap. And by that, they mean when the train pulls into the station, there's actually a gap between the platform and getting on the train. And you're supposed to watch out so you don't, it doesn't slip in there, right? Yeah. But there is a gap. And just an acknowledgement that there is a gap. And that's what you're trying to do in this chapter is kind of remind people there's a gap here. Well, and, and for some reasons, you know, that's completely, and this is the tricky thing about translation, that's completely commonsensical for most people. Of course, going to get a video at Blockbuster at the store is is different than Netflix, except we talk about them as though they were the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the technical literature of computer science, it's not really allowed to have a difference between the source and the target, right? So if you build a compiler... So now we're stepping back to type one of the discussion of what translation is from a software perspective. Right, from compiler. software. So from yeah, a technical let's just, let's software perspective, yeah. you're not supposed to have uh, like the low-level language implement an entirely different process than what's described in the 
the the the source code. Okay. Right? So let's. I, I understand exactly what you're saying there, but let's dive this into people that are not software programmers, right? don't have a software history. Um, when you say lower level and higher level, what, what do you mean? In designing a new programming language, there's a community interest in doing something very efficiently and something that you want to translate. Usually, it's it's a sort of process that you want to translate into very concise text, which are programs. So if you look at the, the history of programming languages, for example, there's a whole set of languages that are built around logic. So you want to be able to, to say things very concisely that you, could, that you might think about in doing logic. Now, this happens to be a different, what we talk about in programming languages, a different paradigm than a set of languages where mostly what you're doing is arithmetic or some kind of uh, quantitative number crunching. Okay. So people that have used like Excel spreadsheets or, or Google sheets understand there's a little bit of programming that you can do. You can like add up two cells and say like, or this is the total sum of all these lines. You know, mm-hmm. We've done this and we're taking care of our checking account and stuff, or you're adding up some numbers inside there. You can actually say like e- this cell equals the addition of all these other cells. So it's a very arithmetic kind of concept. There's, right. a, there's a language right there that's actually doing that. That's a programming language that allows you to do that efficiency. And that language is very different than the languages you'd use for programming websites, for example. It, it would be right. a, a different type of language of JavaScript on, on one hand versus the scripting language that exists inside Excel spreadsheets, which I think right. is VBScript. So what you're saying is that depending on what you're trying to achieve in the program or in the programming environment, you might choose a language that fits that better. And so these languages actually have some different way of syntax, different way of describing them. Right. And which is very common to programmers because they have to get really good at those languages. But you're saying that the, the, it's a miss if when we go to a lower level, we compile down, if you will, we have some, some inconsistency there. How, how, why is that translation so... How, do, how is that translation actually uh, more true, if you will, than meaning changing? Like... Why is this different? Well, it's, it's, it's thought to be, right? So it's, it's just a matter of the pragmatics of it. There's only so many chip makers. Any given uh, chip maker uh, supports a, a processor that has a certain number of instructions to it. Um, those instructions oftentimes are very different than the ones that we want to express the processes of, let's say, spreadsheets or websites and so there needs to be some manner to translate what we're we as programmers are writing about spreadsheets or websites into this just small set of instructions that are that run on the chip Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a whole area of computer science where you're trying to make sure that what you write in your high-level language actually makes sense, makes the same sense as you intended in these low-level languages, which are basically, if not the instructions of the chip, then another layer above that, right? So, right. And when we produce that effect of saying that, you know, a chip manufacturer has instruction sets and a programming language compiles to those set of instructions, that process is very testable. And the failure of that we can actually see with a bit of code. So 
um, unlike the ambiguity of language and meaning, it's very easy to say, well, when I do this in this high-level language, I add these two numbers up, and I send them down, a compile step happens, and it goes to a certain chip, and then the result comes back. The expectation is easy to test that it didn't do what I expected. And that kind of like part of that trying it and getting compiled and then getting back can actually be codified in software called tests so that you kind of know if the compiler is working or not or that whole process is working in almost a mathematical proof sense, or at least to me it conjures mathematical proofs, even though it's not the same. Well, I think there's there's a couple different levels of translation here, right? Because as a programmer, we have in mind a set of specifications that we want to meet. We want the computer program to be able to do certain kinds of things. Those are oftentimes written in English, or if you're lucky, a little more formal language, but not the programming language itself. So you're translating from these more or less vague specs into a program, and then the program, you you hand it over to the compilers to translate down to the, the bottom level. Usually what we have when we're trying to um, verify that the program does what the specs asked us, we have a whole suite of tests then that we run to see if it's we're getting the input-output mm-hmm. that we want. But um, this is... Software engineering was, was invented in, in 1968. There was a, a NATO conference, and uh, it was all even at that time, um, seen as necessary because of all the errors that were coming up in the software. So the, the odd thing here is that what everybody wants is sort of, sort of guaranteed software to work the way the specs um, have it, but the specs are ambiguous, um, so we clear. never get it down to the exactly... And error is intrinsic to everything. It's, it's, there's always errors. There, there's always errors in the sense that even when I... Okay, let's break that down into the spec. The spec is a specification. And the specification basically means like, hey, we're trying to achieve this, software programmers. This is what we're trying to achieve. Right. Um, it's great to, to kind of codify these things into real examples. And since we're talking on GeekSpeak, we can talk about a program that's designed to support this uh, podcast, the GeekSpeak website. Okay. When you visit the website and you click on a specific episode, the way that it's indexed is the year, the month, the day. So I can't, my system can't support having two episodes on the same day. Because when you look at the URL, if you try to do that, you'd only, the system would, would fail to pull two records out the same day. So the specification that I thought of in my mind is, I'd only have an episode one a day episode. that I'll never have any need for that. And that's just like part of the accepted spec. It's not a universal uh system that will support all websites, it's only supporting this one thing. And that's the kind of granularity we're talking about, right? That I know of a bug, but it's not really a bug because in my specification concept, I accepted that as a truth, and therefore the system works with that truth assumed. So that's one part of like, the spec doesn't have to be solve all problems, right? It's solving specific problems. And then there might be an implementation bug in the sense that I go, well, that will make sense, and I'm writing along, and I say, get today's show, and that get today's show code that I wrote um, makes that assumption, 
But additionally, if you put in a different date or something, or you formatted it differently, it would fail. And that, you could kind of think of that as a software bug, because I didn't handle all the different patterns of being able to write a date, for example. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of granularity where you can put it into the spec space, or you can put it in the implementation space, but sometimes it's very clearly just wrong, right? Like that, it, The software itself was written wrong. Right. And that then there's one other part, which is about compiling, which is the program I'm running is actually going to, that software is actually going to run on this, this piece of hardware that Amazon or some other company has. And theoretically, that step is going to work as well. And I'm highly removed from that because it's a lower level thing. So what you're saying, in, it, it, when software engineering as a, a thing started being created in, in, in NATO, like that is like, we need this prop, we need this more engineering around it. What part of that was software engineering trying to solve? Well, the whole gamut. The whole gamut. Oh, okay. Interesting. See, I, I think there well, there's a continuing fantasy in software engineering that you can produce software that has no errors in it. And the first uh, Turing Award winner, Alan Perlis, who was actually there for that first conference on software engineering, um, he, was, he was one of my teachers. Um, he was, but he was both known for his technical work, but also his wit. And so he had a little saying about this. He said, for any programmer who thinks that the computer only does exactly what he tells it to do, give him a lollipop. Um, because he thought that that was completely ridiculous. Um, the computer is a program is always going to have unintended consequences. It's always going to have unintended consequences. It doesn't matter how far you... You're always... Someone's going to use the program in a way that you never expected... Um, there's going to be some problem um, with a lower level language. There's going to be, there, there's, error is intrinsic to this. And so what I'm, what I'm pointing out in this chapter really is that there's a fantasy about perfect translation. Um, and I think we see this in science fiction when we're on the Starship Enterprise and Captain Kirk like is speaking to an alien um, who speaks a language that they've never encountered at, at all, but the computer can translate. Mm -hmm. So it's in American idiomatic 1960s English, right? So that's, that's the fantasy of a perfect translator. Uh, no, th no such fantasy has ever been achieved. There is a lot of uh, technical work to try to achieve it, like, for example, proving specs are correct, Mm -hmm. Proving programs are correct, things like that, but we're never going to get there. And this is pointing out: well, if you take flavor number two of translation, uh, the humanities notion of translation, where you always assume uh, you have to change the source text in order to get the target text, if you want to translate the the Odyssey from ancient Greek into uh, contemporary English, there's going to be all kinds of things that you have to change just to get it so that it sounds right, so it looks right. Um, one so of this year's... potentially has meaning that's similar to the original. Right. Except it's going to be wildly different than the original. You're, you're reading a new translation of, of a, a kind of famous book where you, ha you were recently, uh, the Bible. And... 
you were describing stuff that I wasn't even aware of in my idea of what the Bible says. Is this an example, this, this kind of bifurcation of Christianity or, or Judo, Judo-Christianity? Is that an example of translation issues, or is that an example of something else? I think the, the Bible's a good example. The Bible has been translated again and again through the centuries, and it's always understood by the biblical scholars that they're never going to have it perfect. Um, that it's always worth doing another translation. Uh, this current translation that I've been reading is uh, makes the point that when the last best one was done, which is the King James Version hundreds of years ago, they didn't quite have mastery of ancient Hebrew. That there's all there's been new things that have discovered about what those what ancient Hebrew was, and so you know there's errors. Yeah. Um, and yet, with that acknowledgement about the errors of the past, is an implicit acknowledgement that the current translation is not going to be perfect either, right? It's going to be worth redoing. There's going to be new things that are discovered. Computer science is aesthetic about perfect translation. It doesn't start with computer science. It starts, as I explain in the book, with the efforts of the 17th century to construct uh, artificial languages that you could just say what you mean, and there wouldn't be any kind of spurious inference that could come of that. You, you You're just talking about Bacon's idea. Uh, Francis, Francis Bacon, idea. then Leibniz, and all these. I mean, there's been a whole sequence of artificial languages that were invented before we arrive at when a programming you, language. When you say an artificial language, what you mean is that it's not, it's not created by society slowly over time. It's, oh, wait, we have this problem of ambiguity. Let's make a language that's perfect. That's easy. Like you can, you can understand the language. Once you understand the language, you can say something that has no ambiguity. It's very clear, right? And therefore, that's the language we want to move to. We're not right. talking about Esperanza, right? We're talking about no. conceptual things that don't actually exist. Well, it's it's usually done of a of a piece, right? It's not aggregated over years and years, and oftentimes it's invented by one person. So Leibniz, for example, invented the calculus. So did so did Isaac Newton, uh, but they did Around it simultaneously, mm-hmm. and that is you can think of this um, as in the vein of these artificial languages, right? There's a lot of things you can say in the calculus about rates and flows and so forth, and uh, that is kind of a little hermetically sealed language. If you if you see those signs that indicate it's a it's a part of Calculus. Calculus, you assume it means exactly what, what is said. So, there's, there's a notion that well, there's, there's you only... Just, you just jumped into mathematics, though. Um, I don't think of that... I mean, I don't think of calculus as a language, specifically. I think about it as a methodology of doing math. Why is that a language? Well, these artificial languages are attempts to codify in an unambiguous way, some area of knowledge. And the dream is to actually have a codification for all knowledge okay. in these. But they start, as I explained in the book, with uh, a lot of efforts to just describe how things are made. Right. Um, and you end up with an instruction set to, to talk in com- contemporary computer science. Um, there's, there's certain things that you can do and there are certain objects that you operate with. So, 
obviously the calculus is mostly about numbers, right? The philosopher that I think articulates this best in the 20th century is Ludwig Wittgenstein, who begins his book, The Philosophical Investigations, with uh, the scenario where you're, you're an apprentice to a builder, and your job is to uh, bring the tools that the builder asks for. And so there's a little set, of, a short set of statements that are made throughout the day, like, bring me the hammer. Okay, take the hammer. Uh, right it's okay. it's you're not talking about the weather you're not right <laughs> you're not talking about your love life right um and it's a highly simplified what we call in software space domain language right it's, it's domain specific language and uh wittgenstein asks us to imagine that this is a complete language that this but where's that stuff come in well that's so he's he's asking us to conceptualize everyday discourse as an amalgamation of all these little languages. Okay. And he calls them each a language game, but let's not go there necessarily. <laughs> um, There's another chapter on language. We'll be getting to that. Too, right. Okay. Um, and so uh, there is this imagination about words meaning only what you say they mean, right? Mm. And terms only meaning about what you say they, they mean. But the, in a language that's extensively used, and I think English is really well representative of this issue where, you know, a, a term that starts as a noun becomes a verb. Um, things that mean one thing don't mean like that thing anymore. So, um, you know, uh, a hacker when I was an undergraduate in computer science, meant somebody who was very skilled programmer. And journalism has changed that. So a hacker is somebody who's infiltrating your system and compromising the security. And the way we talk about this in, in the humanities is that certain terms have denotations, right? Every, it means uh, there's within a certain context, it denotes a particular object like uh, when we say a phrase like the cat is on the mat, we mean uh, a very specific kind of mammal, and we mean a very specific kind of floor covering, and we mean a very specific arrangement between that mammal and that floor covering. Um, we, we also know pretty much right away that that mat is on the floor, which right. is, where did that come from? We didn't right. talk about a floor. Right. <laughs> um, but there's also connotation it might connote some other things. So a cat in 1950s American like uh, slang is some guy, right? So the cat, that's a very different kind of mammal. It might it's not a be a yeah. four, uh, it might be a biped. So those are some of the complications, bringing back to translation, that's some of the complications that you have to think about when you actually try to translate. It's like you're making all these assumptions which are actually not in the text. They're in the conceptual, con they're, they're in the, the way we think about the text. Like, when you translate that to French, you'll say la chatte, right? Is that right? <laughs> la chat. La chat. Uh, for the cat, which is not, I'm assuming in French, uh, a hip dude. That's right. There's, That's no, right. There, you, there's no, you're not going to get to a hip dude from... From that phrase. No. And so that is that, that oddity that is just, it's not really even the language, it's the culture around the language and how it's used in the language that is actually part of the translation. But that... That is a very different thing than software 
isn't it? And when you translate in software, you compile in software? Well, we'd like to think so. Um, and but and this is this is where the fantasy comes into play. I think we have a lot of good methodologies for translating from high-level languages into low-level languages, mm -hmm. but it's all of these connotations and unintended meanings that are in the informal text of the specifications that then have to get articulated in a very particular vocabulary that we call a programming language. And if you really got quite good at a software engineer, even if your programming language is something like JavaScript, which is, I think, still the most popular programming language on the planet, and is a high-level language, and it's a language I currently write in all the time, and you're familiar with it as well. Um, even though we think about that and we work on that space, at some level, we've probably also experienced the idea that what's actually happening here when we're talking about going through a for loop at JavaScript is that there's a bit of, there's a, there's a hardware chip um, that's holding memory allocations in a stack. And that, depending on if you're in the stack or if you're on the heap, you're running, and this is all terminology, language around what the processor's doing, what these chips mm -hmm. are doing, that we kind of understand that, that idea. And so, just like um, I understand that when you say the cat is on the mat, we're talking about a floor covering because I kind of understand that. I also somehow know a little bit about what's actually occurring with the, the hardware level. And so my understanding, that helps clarify what the program I'm trying to write does. And there's some gotchas that kind of come up where like, well, if you make, if you, if you iterate over a million entries, the computer that can do that physically doesn't exist. And so actually there's this heap swapping thing that happens, which slows things down. And so there's, there's concepts in what you should and shouldn't do in the programming language of JavaScript, which is actually based on the compilation step and where it actually runs that you kind of have to know as a software engineer. I would say you don't have to know, but the more you know about that kind of the, the better you'll remove some of those side effects that you're not talking about. Is that the kind of stuff we're talking about in, in software or is it really much more that when we talk about it, we talk about a spec, but the spec is not actually the thing. The software is the thing. Well, what, what you're talking about, I think is what, in some ways substantiates the fantasy of perfect translation because it seems like there's technical fixes to all that stuff. But what I'm talking about is let's say you're you're an entrepreneur and you want to disrupt a contemporary social institution like watching a movie at home. Can we use a different example than that one? Okay. So, catching we, a cab. Catching a cab, great. Okay, you want to catch a cab. You want to get wanna, from here to there. You want you want to call a cab, right? Right. Well, you're going to translate, for example, the very call into maybe an interface. Um, you're going to change all the roles of that institution. Like, there's no dispatcher in contemporary uh, there's not a human businesses dispatcher. Like, like Uber or Lyft. There's not, that, that, that job's gone, right? right? So well, well, one way to think of that is that job is now all the processes of what that job was are codified in software. Okay, that, that's the idea, right? Right. That's so what you're saying is like false, right? So you want you want to be able to what you what you're wrangling with if you're trying to disrupt a current institution in order to make a new business of it 
is you need to deal with, well, what do all those people do that are currently a part of that? Um, and what are you going, how are you going to render that as software? Right? So there's certain things that the dispatcher does, uh, like uh, friendly chat with the drivers when they're lonely or uh, special favors to longtime customers, stuff like that. You're probably never going to render that into software. Um, right. And in some ways you can say, well, yeah, but that's bias that we don't need. That doesn't help the customer. That doesn't help the business model. It's okay to let go of that. Like there, there, are, there are rationales around not codifying that. If that was mm-hmm. a primary important thing and we missed it, then in, from a software perspective, oh, we actually we designed the system wrong. It's not taking, it, taking into account that thing the human is doing. How do we codify that? Well, like that would be the software answer to that, right? Well, this, but then the software answer, uh, I think that's correct. But then the software answer doesn't give us any idea about why the taxi cab drivers of the world have reacted so negatively to Uber. Why is that? Right. Right. Because it's obviously not the same thing. It's not the same thing as calling a cab. No, it's not the same thing People's as People's working cab. conditions have changed radically. There's all kinds of stuff that has created a labor protest against this particular translation of what it meant to call a cab. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So you're saying that the translation or the change that's taken place because of the digitization or the software implementation of this new process is the thing that produces the gap that we see as uh, employee rights arguments. Well, another way to put this is that any translation, even a translation into software or through software, is going to have multiple interpretations. And for some people, they're going to think that's a really good translation. And for other people, they're going to say, it's not at all a good... So the executives at Uber think this is a fantastic translation, or the shareholders of Uber think this is fantastic. The taxicab drivers, at least as far as we've seen in them, their labor protests throughout the world, think this is a terrible translation, right? So there's different interpretations of the translation, and that's something that the fantasy of a perfect translation uh, can't deal with. But so... In in software uh, area, we call the, the what the Uber app does as an implementation of a of a, a business model, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't think of it as the same thing as compiling. That's not you know like when I read a spec and I decide to implement it a certain way, the choices on implementing it partly is trying to achieve what the specification is, you know, be able to hail a cab if that was a loose one. And partly my own interpretation of how to do that from a software implementation engineering perspective, how, how tall to make the building, if you will, you know, that, that kind of like, or how thick to make the walls. Person says, I want you to make a building that's five stories tall. I implement that as an engineer. I make the walls too thin. Bad implementation. So there's that aspect of it, which I think what we're getting to is that because the people that are actually deciding what these new translations of taxi cab will be come from the software disciplines that we're seeing that naivete that is kind of, I feel like the acceptance of JavaScript compiles down to machine code and runs, that, quote, perfect translation, that that concept holds up pretty well when you're talking about compilers. I don't... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, it does. I don't think it... And so you're saying is that, that because that holds up so well, we have all these people that have this idea you can translate perfectly, and they go and implement new business models that disrupt, if you say, if right. you will. Right. 
So, so for example, Mark Zuckerberg thinks he knows what it means to connect the world and make it more open. Those are huge philosophical questions that um, Facebook does not answer. But your, but part of your, part of your argument here about translation in that sense is that there is no right way to do that. So there, it's it's always it always has to be negotiated and interpreted and things like that. Well, let's just get back to the, sure. the translation of the Bible. Oh, yeah. Right? Okay. You're not done. <laughs> Even when you think you're done, you're not done. Um, and maybe you've made terrible mistakes in the translation. But, but your argument would be that unless you're, unless you're living in a society that speaks ancient Hebrew, you will never have the same meaning. You'll never get exactly the same meaning. Right. So it doesn't matter what it is. It's always wrong if you think of this idea of having a perfect meaning. Right. It's not, it's not a question of, of right and wrong. It's a matter of interpretation. So you're saying, let's say, let's say we, do, we, we are back in the point when the, when the Bible books were actually written. <laughs> that actually has, if there's a time era in a social... Well, they're written over 100 years, so yeah, yeah. not one person can do that. But no. um, let's say we are in that space. You're saying that even if you read the same text and I read the same text and we grew up you know, a few miles from each other and, and all we saw each other multiple times a year, we'd still have different interpretations of that same text? I think anything that is as complicated as a social institution, like calling a cab, or... Uh, or what's the right or, way to, to clothe your family. Right. I mean, if, if, you read, if you read the, the ancient Hebrew Bible, right? I mean, there's all kinds of how-to stuff, like, what are you supposed to do with your neighbors? What are you not supposed to do with your neighbors? What are you supposed to eat? What are you not supposed to eat? Right? How are you supposed to prepare what you're eating? How are you not supposed to prepare? Yeah. Right. And These are instructions. So the whole, you know, thousands of years of Talmudic tradition have elaborated on exactly what that means. And that, that uh, interpretation of those texts um, have is never ending in some sense. It's, it's it's never it's it's never done. So there are certain very circumscribed domains where right and wrong, perfect translation can be evaluated. But as soon as you get as as big as like a business model for anything, you're beyond that. You're you're into all kinds of state. questions. So math's a great example of this. We can pretty we, we have a pretty good definition of the language of math in the sense that if I say one and one, that's two. It's pretty clear that it's really easy to evaluate failure in that space um, compared to other things. And even a simple language that I think you were talking about, no, it wasn't Bacon, it was Leibniz, was talking about like a, a supporter for a carpenter. They know all the tools and all their jobs to take the tool and bring it over and take this it back. Wittgenstein, right. It's Wittgenstein, mm-hmm. sorry. So it's very clear to say, well, you brought me a saw, I asked for a hammer, you're not understanding me. And there's a clear interpretation of the understanding. Right. You're saying that at some point, given enough complexity in the system, it's not possible to do that in a perfect way. That's right. That's and right. That's the problem of translation. And even, you know, even if it's terribly circumscribed, uh, like arithmetic, you say one and one is two, except in binary, one and one is eleven. Right. You still have some examples baselines I mean, that you have to. Sorry. Yeah. One and one is is ten, right? <laughs> or it's ten. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Don't get your binary wrong. Whoops. I also can't. I do not like. It's so funny as a software engineer when you you say 
<laughs> well, when you get it wrong, it's really bad. But right, when you say exactly. one and one is 10, if I'm reading in binary, I don't call that 10. I call that two. Right. It is exactly. the character structure written down, if you will, printed, if you will. Um, we have to translate it into something that you can, quote, read. But in reality, when you think of a number like that, we don't have names for those numbers except for uh, our decimal. Our, our language is decimal-based. We usually right? use decimal, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's very weird to hear one zero when you're referring to binary as 10. I don't right. think of it that way. Well, but I that's mean, interesting. Most, that's a translation problem, right? M- most, of our, most of our numbers are decimal, but uh, things like... A dozen. The fact that we have uh, 360 degrees in a circle, we've got 60 minutes in an hour, things like that. That comes from ancient Babylonian, where the, the, the more technical people of that time used a base 60 number system, right? So two points I want to make. One is that we don't use a purely decimal system even in our everyday speaking, right? And secondly because we've got things like 360 degrees in the circle or 12 inches in a foot or all this, this kind of stuff that are vestiges of older forms of numbering. And then second of all, what's really difficult when you're writing a book, a software studies book, is um, you don't want to make any technical mistakes, right? If I, if I, if I can't add binary numbers and I put that in the book, you lose all credibility with with software with the people who write software, right? Mm-hmm. It's a tricky path to to walk because you want to talk about number in a kind of vernacular sense, but then when you use it in a very precise sense, you don't want to uh, mess up what that means. Mm-hmm. And part of you know what I'm talking about in terms of at the beginning of this. A chapter on translation is what we refer to when we talk about digitization and we just say, well, you know, at the bottom of all these computer processes, these digitization processes, everything's just uh, binary numbers, ones and zeros. Except that what that really means, like, let's say we write a program and then we uh, compile it down to just a set of ones and zeros, which ultimately we do. The ones and zeros, like one, uh, one doesn't necessarily mean one. It might mean um, instruction number one, right? It might not mean the number one, right? And so, and technically, it's it's a it's instructions for a machine that's a piece of hardware that does certain things that somebody clarified what those things are based on. Like they they, they created an interface to this piece of hardware, saying pushing this to the stack or whatever is this instruction and how to do that. So that's what that actually, that those ones and zeros are, is actually instructions into a physical piece of hardware. And this is the pivotal part of my claim, that we're ultimately not talking about numbers when we're talking about computers. We're talking about language or instruction sets, if you will, because it's not a correct uh, understanding of a computer program that's been compiled to ones and zeros to simply look at those ones and zeros and name what those numbers are in decimal. Right. That's useless. It, that's that is not that's not what it is. It's not it's not numbers down there. It's it's uh, instructions um, things like fetch this particular value from this particular register, right? right. So it's, it's just not numbers, right? Okay. Yeah, it isn't numbers. No, it's true. 
Uh, it, it looks like a bunch of binary numbers, but it's, that's not what it is. That's just a codification of something that's actually what we're trying to wrangle with the architecture of the chip in some ways. So in that sense, the software that I write that's trying to implement a spec, a specification, it's trying to implement something, that then compiles down to actually numbers from a piece of software I don't write, but I hope that that compiler is working. All that step is more about how do you talk to an instruction set, if you will. I, I guess what I'm saying is that the important piece there in my mind now really is that how do you interpret the interface? How do you decide to implement the specification? Or how do you just say, I'm going to do this to make online cabs, you know, calling exist. So in some sense, it feels like the chapter on translation talking about both compilation and on transformation of meaning through traditional translation concepts seems to kind of push those together in some way. And that it feels like it'd be very easy to say, no, no, these are two different things. These are two different problems. But are you saying that the reason why you want them to, that, 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 one is actually driving the other, this kind of really clean way of thinking about translation in a compiling step where it actually, you are trying to get to a truth of what the meaning is, is different, but because of all these people influencing the, uh, the re-implementation of business models, it, it corrupts this other space? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Well, it's, it's a counter-argument. So let me, let me state the argument, first of all. There's an argument, for example from software engineering that we can, we can uh, prove a program correct, which means that you have a certain specifications and you can prove that those specifications are actually working in the program. Uh, there's like, that is conflating these two spaces of compilation mm -hmm. and interpretation of the specifications. Right. Right. Uh, and because so, what you have to do there is you have to say, and I, I, when you say that, I think of, well, if I write full test coverage, this is the concept of full test coverage, which is basically making other pieces of software that call your software passing all the parameters you possibly could such that you cover all the ways it could run. That's the conceptual ways of doing of the sort of means to have full coverage. Of and because of that, I can kind of think of that test suite as a proof of my software. Mm-hmm. What am I missing here? Go on to that. Well, we get into other methodologies for proving programs correct, but I think I can simply say that if you look at engineering education, oftentimes the stated purpose of it is to is to teach people how to be problem solvers. So the presupposition of that is that the spec or the problem is already done by the time you, the engineer, arrive on the scene. What I'm saying is software is actually an art and a form of design where you don't necessarily know what the problem is. You might be handed a problem, you might solve the problem, but it might be the wrong problem. And what I'm saying here is when you have something as complicated as a business model or you're trying to disrupt a certain social or cultural institution you can't possibly have the spec. It's too complicated right. for it to be stated as a single problem or even a set of problems that get solved. You're saying that there is a point in understanding or how the world works 
that a simple example set of like, give me the hammer, give me the saw, does not scale. These artificial languages just break at a certain point. They don't, they can't consume all, all ways of thinking or all ways of communicating. Is that kind of what you're, mm-hmm. you're saying? But what you're trying to do, I think, as a software designer or even as a software engineer or as a computer scientist, you're oftentimes trying to translate a ill-defined uh, set of interactions or processes into, into code. Like, that's, that's your job. But depending upon what idea of translation you have in your head when you're doing that, you can have a very different notion of whether or not you've succeeded yeah. or not, right? Yeah. Another example here, people feel that Google has solved search, for example, right? Now, yeah, yeah. But if you look at the way it's done at Google, it's, it's too complicated, actually, to, to look at now. But if you look in the early days, um, how it's done, because they don't, they actually change the algorithm every a, a few times a day, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, the, the problem space is we have all uh, a massively growing set of web pages in the world that have information on them theoretically. Right. And how do you actually get to the information you want? And so we go to Google search. It's actually become a, a verb. You know, go Google that, whatever. And what that actually means is you go into uh, their application and you put in some text. And given all the stuff that they've indexed, which is probably quite a bit of the content on the internet and the text that you've given, and a whole bunch of other stuff they don't actually talk about, you get back a list of results. Uh, describe right. what it used to do. So the, the so-called PageRank algorithm, which was at the core of the original search engine for Google, more or less um, took into account not just the text that was on the pages, and this was the innovation that they introduced. This is what created Google. This is what created Google. They also looked at the connectivity of that page. So if it was a page that, let's say, talked about baseball a bunch, and there were lots of other pages that that linked to that page, then even if other pages had more references to baseball on it, you'd probably get at the top of your search results the one that had the most links into it. Kind of a popularity ranking. So it's it's the the notion is you found the right page um, if it's the most popular page about that topic, right? Right. So if you the, it's so funny in that learning about that you know fifteen twenty years ago whatever um, that totally made sense to me. Now I see all the side effects of the how problematic just that simple one is. Right. In the sense that wait why would popularity denote truth? That's not true at all. Well, and I and I, and I think you know. In some ways, let's say if you're thinking about building this for a consumer, that's that's the right thing, right? That's where you're going to find uh, the right page. But well, if also, you're if you're building it for someone who's a citizen and who wants to know, let's say, opposing opinions about a popular topic, then we all know the problem with the the search engine, and it's not just Google search engine anymore. All the search engines are built on popularity. And you're saying all the search engines, you mean that basically Facebook also produces an algorithm that's like the search engine, which produces your feed on Facebook. Right. And that we all know, we now know at a cultural level, there's some problems there. And that we, we name those problems as problems of democracy, right? Uh, echo right. chambers. Well, never, nobody ever hears the opposing opinion. 
right. where we we get this polarization where it seems like the two parties in this country are selecting from entirely different facts. Well, that's what you get if you're trying to just give people um, the thing, the they thing want. That's, that's, that's tuned to mostly what they want. The other aspect of what if you that that base level page ranking system that Google produced, the other thing they produced relatively quickly was analysis of the successfulness of that page, and that's where that that feedback mechanism came in place that produced bubbles. And this, of course, we're talking about this very simplistically because talking about the implementation details, first off, is secret. You have to mm-hmm. go at Google. There's some papers about it, but I also change all the time. But the the idea of success rate that allows you to tune your algorithm says. Was I searched for, uh, you know, this baseball player's stats, and I got to a page, and then I went back on my browser and I went to the next link and got to the page, and then I went back again, and eventually the fifth link, I stayed on that page for a while and didn't ask Google anymore. So therefore, number five is actually more valuable to me. That's the, their algorithm. That so then they started mm-hmm. codifying that concept, right. and what that produces is that bubble concept that if you're looking for a certain thing and I'm looking for a certain thing, we search the same phrase, we're going to get different results because truth that as they learn about us more, if you will, we have more different desires, not just popularity, but what we want, right. which is this inference that Facebook has gotten really good at. Well, and, and the, big, bubbles. the big problem right now is that uh, location data has been added into all of this. So because most of us carry a mobile phone. Uh, if we've got location services turned on, the search engine knows exactly where we are all the time. And it's going to vary the result according to our location. Now, if I'm trying to find a, a restaurant, it's trying really- to find the best Chinese restaurant, and... Wherever you are is important. But the, wherever I am, that's, that's exactly it. But if I'm trying to find what the current debate about tariffs are in the United States or something like that. To personalize that to a location is very problematic from, yeah. a, from a perspective of democracy. Now, is this a translation problem? Well, so here's what I'm saying, is that if you've got a certain notion of translation in your head, then you might be able to say, well, Google solved the search problem. Okay. But... If you have another notion of translation in the head, where translation always entails some unforeseen differences, some uh, unanticipated consequences, some errors, then you'd hesitate to say something like that. Mm-hmm. Because you might think, let's say we're speaking in when uh, Google starts, what was it, 1998 or something like that? We'd say, oh, the search problem's solved. We weren't thinking 20 years down the line where there's all these further implications yeah. of solving it, so to speak, yeah. uh, the way that they did. It's interesting. Prior to, prior to Google existing, there was this uh, website called AltaVista, which also indexed mm-hmm. web pages as a search engine. And when you used AltaVista as a, a person that kind of liked the uh, mechanic, mechanization of software and kind of thinking about software and how programs worked and all that, it had a very robust way of, of using the system. You, you kind of had to do this. And an example would be, say, I want information about uh, baseball, but I don't want information about New York. So, so minus New York. So now all the pages that were showing up would probably be more West-leaning baseball rules and wouldn't talk about 
I don't know. <laughs> I don't baseball, so I don't know who's on the <laughs> website. But you know, you, you could basically start kind of programming your search query. You could start adding things. I only want pages that talk about this and this, and I don't want pages that talk about this or this. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of starting to produce a language. You're, you're starting to try to do the translation of what you mean into a codified, more strict language. And I remember thinking, oh, I just got to teach people how to do this, and they can find stuff on the internet. You know, I, people would ask me, how do you find this? I, oh, you do this. And I'd give them, URL, I'd give them like a, a whole bunch of parameters that you'd have to do on the search engine. You can still kind of do some of those in Google. In my naivete, I just thought that people would get better at having more clarity in what they're trying to look for, which, of course, has not happened at all. In fact, we don't even have clarity on what we're getting back <laughs> because the system's trying to think for us, if you will. But that's that right there encapsulates a reason why more people should know how to program. Because the way that you got AltaVista better was more or less programming it, right? You were doing complicated queries. And it's not because we need to get better at using AltaVista. As far as I know, it doesn't even exist anymore. It's simply that what is happening in software right now is done via programming, and to not have some notion about how the software could get better or how it might change is to kind of operate in a world that's that's beyond imagination in many ways. And so most of what we do with software is is no longer these nice little concise tasks like bring me the hammer. It's these very complicated things like, uh, let's automate vote counting in the county of Santa Cruz, right? Which is very complicated, way too complicated to be considered a problem that can get solved. And once it's solved once, it's done and over with. So that's why I'm trying to introduce both this humanities notion of translation into it. That's always an undone task. It's never finished. You might do a really good job, but it's never done. And also to introduce, like, what does it mean to program in some sense? Because I think that's it's important to, to be able to hold those two things together, which have been ideologically separated, which is computer programming and this humanities notion of, of translation. The books, the software arts. In the next episode, we will actually talk about language. Um, and I'm sure we'll touch on some of these topics again, but I look forward to that more. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lyle. One thing I think we're doing as we're talking about this, Warren, is uh, we're touching upon multiple parts of the book in some sense, right? Yeah. Like in the introduction, we talked a lot about translation, actually. And in, in this one, we're actually touched quite a bit about language, which is, I think, the next chapter, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's okay. I remember early on learning from you something that I thought was really, it stuck with me quite a bit. Um, I was in one of your grad seminars as a guest, and we were talking about categorization of political discussions because one of your students was interested in that. 
And you, you talked kind of critically about this concept that you can categorize things, that categories actually have a meaning, or that they don't imbue more meaning in the system if you add them. And I've thought about that in a lot of different ways. And one of the things that I decided to do, you decided to do this, of course, is you broke your, your book into chapters to kind of allow certain areas of this discussion to build your argument. It's a very standard way of doing <laughs> argument building. And then I thought, well, great, we'll just do an episode on every chapter. That's perfect, right? And now, because I've decided to do that, and I've codified that, if you will, in a publication of the first podcast and now the second podcast, that structure is producing a side effect on how we talk about this topic, which, of course, you know, you could write this book 50 different ways, obviously, right? You right. put language first, or you could have just not had a separation between these two chapters, just squished them together and had a broader area. What is that? Like, that's also a translation issue, right? Is it? It's funny. Um, I wrote the book. I got the peer reviews from MIT Press. One of them said I walked on water, and the other one said, this is a jumbled mess. There might be... This might count as some notes towards a book, but it certainly is a book. <laughs> Very harsh. That is pretty harsh. And when you're saying walk on water, you mean someone was like, this is amazing. This, this is a great a, book. Love it. I love the language. I love the way that it's written. Yeah. yeah. Just, just publish it. Right. Right. And the other with this really rough response. And so I decided to take seriously the latter response. And I said, okay, if somebody can actually read this book and come out with that opinion, and this is not just somebody. I mean, this is important. This is MIT peer. Press hire somebody who's really knowledgeable about the area. So about software studies, pre- presumably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't know who the peer reviewers are. Oh, good. Okay, that's kind um, of good. That this is all anonymous review, and it wasn't so, me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a peer reviewer for the for that. So go on. But you couldn't tell me if you were right. right, right. Um, so I there's a developmental editor in town. Uh, Kathy Chekovich, and she went through like everything with me from the beginning to the end. And Kathy is not a software expert; she's a playwright and essayist. Um, so she's reading it to see. She, she does this work called developmental editing, and she reads uh, these academic books. Mine, one among them, to see if they're readable by just somebody who's not a software person, yeah. not you. Right. And so I I get through, what was it, the first four chapters with her and make these massive revisions. Took me another six months of rewriting with, with Kathy to actually get the thing that you have here. So in some ways you say this book could be rewritten 50 different ways. It was. Ways. <laughs> it was. Um, and I get to chapter five, and I it was the first chapter that I wrote, actually. Um, and I realize, oh, I don't even need this. Oh, it's so not a book. So I threw the whole chapter five out. What was chapter five, kind of loosely? Uh, loosely, it talked a, a lot about, well, a lot of issues that are strung throughout the other chapters. So it was redundant in some ways, but it was the first one that I wrote. And it was, a lot of it was about how data can be programs and programs can be data. Oh, yeah. I remember this, to- I remember this topic. Yeah. Um, it had a lot of stuff around cellular automata, which yeah. is later in the book. Fascinating stuff. Right. Yeah. So. The way binary numbers can be pictures, and pictures can be numbers, and numbers can be programs, right? We touched on yep, this a little yep. bit today. But I, I said to Kathy, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave out the next chapter. You just go on to the next one. You tell me whether you missed it at all. And she said, no. <laughs> what, 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 was, what was not there? 
Um, and well, it's the point being yeah. as you as you write the book, you're rewriting the book constantly. And certain things that seemed absolutely vital. I mean, this is the first chapter that I finished. How could I imagine throwing it out? Right. It defined what the book was going to be. Yeah. I completely threw it out. And that wasn't the only chapter that I completely threw out. I had another chapter all around narrative um, yeah. that completely got you jettisoned. Did a, you did a whole bunch of research around narrative. Oh, yeah. Because um, one of the side effects of, of being a friend of yours um, in when you're writing a book like this, is that and, a, and being a software person, you'd be like, "Hey, does this make sense from a technical perspective?" Like, and and you actually did a talk at a conference that I that I uh, uh, ran, right, about narrative definition, trying to make a codified language for narrative, right, which is <laughs> very hard. You wrote a whole bunch of software around this. You you implemented multiple stories. You talk in your talk. You and it, I think it's actually online if somebody wants to find it. Um, you talked about how the software actually achieved it from a technical perspective. And that's all gone? Like, yeah. I mean, it helped clarify probably other parts of the book. I mean, it's not gone. It was actually, it was a year of software development efforts. Um, I've got that up online for people who are interested in so-called, you know, story generation and things like that. So yeah, yeah. People can gross. use the code. Yeah. Um, and I did write uh, a journal article about it for a philosophy journal. So it doesn't get a lot into the technical details, but... It gets into some of the implications of what does it mean to write programs that write stories and things yeah. like that. It's, I mean, just to dive in a little bit of this, because it's such an interesting topic, um, this idea, like, if you're writing a narrative, you have to think about not just what each person, what, what, what is it going on in the world, but also what people know and how the knowledge gets transferred as well. You know, like, uh, where people are is important. If you're near each other, you might actually know something about the narrative because of the location the two people are. Um, but it also could be like a letter could, could infer communication, and that changes narrative as well. All of that, trying to codify that all into, right. into and you, code. And to, you, get in, you get into codifying all these things, like if two characters are in the same space, they know that the other person is there. Right. right? And if you don't put that, then... Right. They don't necessarily... <laughs> right. And then even if you <laughs> they, they do don't have pass- powers of perception just, right. just because... And, then of co- and of course, this is all inherent to... Writers have to know this, right? They have to, to describe this when you, when you talk about this. But what we're doing is trying to... What you're trying to do in the software design uh, is actually codify the truth of a narrative in the sense like all the rules necessary to be able to say this is what happened or this is what happened. So you could actually render it, if you will, in a different type of style. You could render it in third-person omniscient. You could render it in first-person. Right. Um, or you could have different styles around it. And you could actually say, yes, this narrative description of this one version of the story actually, at a baseline, can be explained this way in code. Really kind of... Did you think you succeeded with that project? Well, it's another project. Yeah. I, I thought it was a part of this project. No, it's right? a that, big project. That, that's what was interesting uh, about writing the book, about finishing the book, but especially this this final six months with the development editor, um, is you realize, oh, that's the next project. That's not this project, yeah. <laughs> right? And I thought it was a little crazy making of myself when, as I was finishing the book, I was saying, oh, my next project should be this. Um but I talk to other authors who've written many books, and they say, "Oh, yeah, that always happens. That's what happens. Your 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 next project bleeds in yeah. almost uh, anachronistically from the future 
into your current work and you got to push it out so funny so that you defer that you actually pay the attention that it merits it's great i i the reason i brought up this like uh post-show discussion with you uh, that's where this is actually going by the way it's like after our music fades because i said thank you to you and that was kind of the end of the episode if you will and i always put extra stuff at the end because it's fun this is that. Um, <laughs> so, and I normally don't reference that when I'm recording, so this is interesting. But in any case, the reason, of course, I brought this whole point up was that we had this bleed of we talked about language. And last time, episode before, we talked about it. And so I felt like that was a problem that emerged that we need to address in some sense because I'm originally following the structure of this, this categories that we're going to talk about this episode. And, you know, so episode two is going to be about chapter two and so on. Um, I love that you're actually, your book itself did that and as you honed it you had to pull stuff out of it to put it into future project that's not a you know a part of the book the software arts right yeah interesting one last thing that i think is kind of interesting that i'm thinking about now is that we're doing a podcast about the book chapter by chapter which in some ways is a translation of the book a different form for sure um how are we doing it's interesting right because the chapter that we went through is in the printed version all centered around the beginning of the theory of computation, what Alan Turing did to codify by extended analogy uh, between the computers of his time, which were people and machines. Like that's where we get the Turing machine. I say that's a translation. And uh, what his ultimately dissertation advisor, Alonzo Church, did of similar uh, in a similar vein by creating what's called the Lambda Calculus, which is sort of at the core of javascript and a variety of other languages and we don't even get to there no right? that's no. the main that's the main example of that whole yeah yeah chapter so it's it's interesting yeah.